Well, do you remember the saying from grammar school uh, in 1492? That's very good. Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Well, you know, Christopher Columbus had no idea how big the earth was when he actually sailed the ocean blue, right? He was trying to find a western route uh, to Asia to accomplish uh, some of the trade uh, that they wanted to do. And uh, after many, many days, he bumped into a rather large landmass that we now call North America, right? He did not know that that was there. Uh, and while sailing around the Dominican Republic in that area, uh, Columbus also discovered something else. You may not know this. He discovered mermaids, mermaids around the Dominican Republic. And so mermaids are these mythical half-female, half-fish-like creatures, and they've existed in, in seafaring lore since you know, the beginning of the Greeks sailing uh, around uh, that, that area. Uh, and they're usually drawn like this or depicted like this with the head of a woman and the torso of a fish. And according to legend, uh, they live in the ocean and they can take on human shape and they can even marry mortal men. And when Columbus saw these mermaids, he was very, very disappointed. He said, they're not half as beautiful as the artists draw them to be. And it turned out that the mermaids that Columbus saw were actually manatees. Manatees. <laughs> slow-swimming, fat mammals with wrinkly faces and not at all attractive. So uh, we can understand for Columbus that uh, with this image of mermaids that he had in his mind, it's no wonder that he was so greatly disappointed uh, to see that they were not half as beautiful as he had hoped they would be. Well, what does any of this have to do with the tribulation? Well, the coming of the Antichrist will be similar. It will be similar. He will not be what people think he is either. Uh, he will portray himself as this suave and handsome and debonair leader, uh, a savior, a political leader who makes peace and brings prosperity to the nations. But in reality, he will be a beast. Uh, he will be ugly, uh, a tool of Satan empowered to do his bidding. Uh, he is a false Christ. He is the Antichrist. And so last week, we talked about the beginning of the tribulation. The beginning of the tribulation. The tribulation is Daniel's 70th week, uh, the seven-year period predicted by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, uh, that will begin after the uh, rapture of the church and after uh, the Antichrist signs this covenant with Israel. And so that will begin right after the rapture of the church when Jesus comes for his church. And so in the first three to five, uh, three and a half years of the tribulation, uh, this is the top right box there, uh, Israel will experience the punishments that we talked about last week in, in 13, 4 to 8. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, uh, all these things will happen in the first half of the tribulation. And these things correspond to the seal judgments, the first judgments in Revelation chapter 6. And we said last week, the white horse is, is this rider on a horse, the conqueror who goes out to conquer. And we said last week that, that many commentators agree that this rider on the white horse is the Antichrist who goes out to conquer, making peace first with the nations. And then the rest of Revelation 6, there are six more seals. Uh, these seals are war, famine, death, the cry of the martyrs under the altar, uh, and earthquakes. And so these correspond to the wars, rumors of wars, famines, and earthquakes of the first uh, half of the tribulation that we looked at last week. And so all of this will happen in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. 
And though these natural disasters will be bad, uh, Israel will not yet be persecuted by the nations. They will still trust in this covenant that they have made with the Antichrist. And we see this in the first phrase of Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, which says, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. So the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel and the nations, and they rest in the security of that covenant. And it's not until three and a half years into uh, this tribulation period that the Antichrist will break his covenant with Israel, and he will show himself to be a great deceiver, not the great deliverer that he had promised to be and that Israel had hoped he would be. And so we see that in the remainder of Daniel 9.27, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete desolation, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So we see this language here about the abomination and the desolation, and in our passage today, Jesus affirmed Daniel's language and prophecy, but in more ways than Daniel even understood. So what we're going to do first is we're going to read our passage today all the way through, verses 14 to 23, uh, and then we'll discuss uh, our outline for the day is who is this Antichrist, uh, what will he do, and what should we do uh, while we wait. So Mark chapter 13, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house, and the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are suffering, or I'm sorry, nursing babies in those days, but pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will be. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. So, who is this Antichrist? You know, Daniel and Jesus both spoke of this abomination of desolation. So what did they mean here? Well, in this case, this is one of those areas of prophecy where we have multiple fulfillments of the same prophecy. And so we're going to be diving a little deep into Daniel this morning, which you may remember from when we did it a couple years ago. But I think we need to understand Daniel if we're going to understand what is going on here in Mark chapter 13. So Daniel prophesied about 400, or I'm sorry, 500 years before Jesus was even born. And some of Daniel's prophecies pointed to a, a Greek ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, who lived at about 170-ish BC. Uh, but some of these prophecies also pointed beyond Antiochus Epiphanes uh, to uh, an end-time uh, ruler. And Daniel chapter 8 actually prophesies about both. 
so remember in Daniel 8, uh, back when we were studying that, remember there was this vision that Daniel had of uh, an angry goat, right? An angry goat that was moving so fast across from the west that his feet didn't even touch the ground. Uh, and he had this prominent horn in the middle of his head. And when he reached this ram, he struck the ram with such anger, uh, and the ram had no power to resist uh, the power of this goat. And then later on in Daniel 8, an angel interprets this vision for Daniel, because Daniel doesn't understand what's going on. So here is what the angel says. The ram which you saw, whoops, the ram which you saw uh, with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is in between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that came up in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. So obviously, Scripture tells us exactly who the goat and the ram are, so there's no mystery here. But, G, uh, but, but uh, history has also borne this out, right? We know from history uh, that the goat is Greece, and the, the horn is Alexander the Great, Greece's first king, its conqueror. And Medo-Persia is the ram with two horns. We're told in other places in Daniel that one horn was smaller than the other. The larger horn represented the Persian Empire. The smaller horn represented the uh, Median Empire. And so Greece conquered Persia in 331 BC. Uh, and so as soon as that happened, though, very soon after that happened, uh, this big horn that this goat had was broken off, broken off. And what we know is that Alexander the Great died shortly after that conquest. He died in 323 in his 30s. And what happened after that was that <coughs> these four horns represented four generals who would arise out of Alexander the Great's empire, and they would divide geographically his empire. And one of those horns, the one you see uh, in the middle there, is the one who was, that was ruled by Seleucus, part of the Syrian empire, uh, to the north. And in 175, one of the descendants of the Seleucids, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, uh, would come to power and he would set his sights on Israel. And so he invaded Israel in 170 BC. And from that time, he uh, started to clamp down on Israel. He forbade them from offering sacrifices to God and he executed thousands of people who resisted his regulations. He plundered the temple of its treasures and its precious metals, but his, his worst act of blasphemy was that he offered a sacrifice uh, to Zeus in the Jewish temple. He sacrificed a pig on the altar of the temple. And there could be nothing. I mean, in your wildest imagination, you couldn't think of anything more offensive to the Jews than sacrificing an unclean animal on, their holy, in the, on the altar of their holy temple. And so the Jews revolted against this Antiochus Epiphanes, ended up uh, under the Maccabeans, uh, kicking Antiochus out of the temple and regaining control over it for a little while. But in the next verses, in Daniel 8, Daniel prophesies about a future leader uh, beyond Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, verses 23 to 25. In the latter period of their domination, when the wrongdoers have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue, and his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and be successful and do as he pleases. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will make deceit a success by his influence. And he will make himself great in his own mind, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. And he will oppose even the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency." 
So much of the prophecy that we see here does not synchronize with what we know of, of uh, the Jews under Antiochus Epiphanes, which leads us to believe that there will be a future fulfillment of these verses beyond Antiochus Epiphanes, and indeed, many of these descriptors don't seem to make sense with Antiochus Epiphanes at all. So we're talking about uh, that he will rise in, in a latter period uh, of dominion, and he will rise not by his own power, meaning he's empowered by uh, Satan, uh, he will be great in his own mind. He will oppose the prince of princes. He will take people while they are at ease, in other words, under the comfort uh, and the security of the covenant that they believe they have entered into with him. And so uh, this is a future king beyond Antiochus Epiphanes that Daniel is prophesying about. Now, in Mark chapter 13, our passage for today, uh, Jesus is also prophesying about a future abomination that causes desolation. Now, from Jesus' perspective, we know that 40 years later, the Romans would come and they would destroy the Jewish temple at about 70, at, in 70 AD. But even that was only a near fulfillment of the prophecy of an abomination that causes desolation. We know that this was not the final fulfillment of the prophecy because, as we'll see next week when we get into the later verses of Mark chapter 13, it says that when the abom abomination of desolation happens, then Jesus will return. And since Jesus has not yet returned, we can surmise that this abomination of desolation that Jesus talked about hasn't yet happened. It still awaits future fulfillment. So who will fulfill it? Who is this abomination of desolation or abomination that causes desolation? Well, let's return to Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, you may remember that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and it greatly disturbed him. And he called all the wise men in to not only uh, interpret the dream, but also to tell the king the dream itself. And none of the wise men could do it. So Nebuchadnezzar calls in Daniel after Daniel says, I can interpret this dream for you. And so Daniel does. Daniel says, you saw in your dream a vision, a gold statue or a statue with a gold head and then a breastplate of silver, thighs of bronze, legs, feet, and toes, which were part iron and part clay. And then a stone smashed this statue and became a great mountain that filled the earth. And Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, this gold head, this represents your kingdom. But three more coming, kingdoms are coming behind you. And from history, we know these kingdoms to be Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And then the stone that smashes this, this statue uh, is Jesus Christ, but not at his first coming, at his second coming, when he comes a second time. These ten toes are a reborn, reconstituted Roman government uh, that will exist in the future when the Antichrist will lead. And its end comes when Jesus, the smiting stone of Daniel chapter 2, returns, defeats his enemies, and sets up his millennial kingdom on earth. So from Daniel 2, we can glean that there will be four future kingdoms, uh, at least from Daniel's perspective, uh, and that Jesus will defeat these kingdoms in the end times. Now, that's Daniel 2. Let's look at Daniel chapter 7. Because in Daniel 7, we learn a lot more about this fourth kingdom, this fourth ruler who will arise. Uh, Daniel 7 is very similar to Daniel chapter 2, except with much more information about this fourth kingdom. So Daniel 7 is this vision of the four beasts. Remember the vision of the four beasts, where uh, there is uh, the, the first is a lion, the second is a bear, the third is a leopard, and then the fourth is, is this dragon-like creature with ten horns on his head. And then another horn grows out of these ten horns, uh, and it uproots three horns, and it makes great boasts. 
Now, the angel interprets this vision for Daniel because Daniel doesn't know what it means, and he says the four beasts are four kingdoms that would arise. So just like in Daniel 2, the kingdoms are, uh, they are first Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, and then Rome. But Daniel specifically asked more about this fourth beast. Tell me more about this fourth beast. Who is this? And this is where Daniel's vision in Daniel 7 expands on what we've already been told in Daniel chapter 2, because it's about this fourth kingdom that will arise in the tribulation. So the angel said to Daniel in uh, 7, 23 to 25, uh, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and who will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, most scholars would agree that verse 23 has actually already been fulfilled in the Roman Empire. It was different than any other empire that came before it in its ferocity and how it devoured the whole world and ruled over it for centuries. But verse 24 represents a, a jump forward in time because this stuff has not been fulfilled yet. It's referring to a future reconstituted Rome that will exist in some form when Jesus comes again. And I say that because nothing in history corresponds to these 10 kingdoms uh, that are referenced here in verse 24. There's never been anything like this before. So since the first four kingdoms that have existed, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, uh, were all literal kingdoms, we presume that this, four, this, this reconstituted Rome, this kingdom will also be literal as well. So these events of Daniel chapter 7, verses 24 to 25, will happen in this tribulation period, uh, the, the, in the right part of that slide, after the rapture of the church and during the second half of the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week. And in those days, a ten-nation federation will exist. And out of, these king, out of these ten kingdoms, one kingdom will come will rise up, a ruler uh, who will humble the three kings. He will speak against the nations. He will speak against the Most High. He will greatly exalt himself, and he will make war against the saints. This is the abomination of desolation. He is the Antichrist. His kingdom will last for a time, times, and half a time. A time is one year. Times is two years. Half a year is half a year. So that's three and a half years. This represents the second half of the tribulation, which is called the Great Tribulation uh, in Luke's Gospel. Further described in Revelation, all through Revelation, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Matthew's version of the Olivet Discourse, Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse, and our passage today, uh, Mark chapter 13, verses 14 to 23. Uh, and this persecution that the Antichrist will undergo, or will, will bring on the nations, and on Israel particularly, that ends with Jesus' second coming. So, who is this Antichrist? I know you all want me to name names, but I'm not going to name names, because I don't know when it's going to be, and I don't know if the Antichrist exists now. He may. Uh, but I believe that Satan has an Antichrist prepared at all times for when God decides that this tribulation ought to come. So according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, 
Uh, this man will only be revealed when God removes the restraining influence that exists on the earth now. Now, I believe that that restraining influence is the Holy Spirit that is represented in the church that will be raptured. That's the removal of the restraining of the restrainer on earth, <clears throat> the rapture of the church. And so from Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 and from Revelation, uh, we understand that this, this leader will be the leader of a new reconstituted government that will arise after the rapture. He will sign a covenant with the nations and Israel, and he will uh, promise peace and safety. Uh, he will sign that covenant. That begins the seven-year tribula tribulation. The people will think that he is something that he's not. He will be a great deceiver, uh, and they will be deceived because they did not heed Jesus' warnings that we talked about last week. Do not be deceived. Uh, be on your guard and stand firm. So that's who the Antichrist is. I can't identify him any further than that, but we know who he's going to be, and we know what he will look like when he comes. Uh, he will have all these marks uh, that are described in Daniel uh, and that Jesus described in his Olivet Discourse. So now, uh, who is the Antichrist? Now, what will he do? You know, Jesus did not list all the atrocities that the Antichrist will commit in Mark chapter 13. He only warned that when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, then you ought to flee. You have to flee when this happens. Uh, this is what he's talking about. And so uh, we know he's talking about the future because Mark inserts this little parenthetical statement, let the reader understand. Let the reader understand. Mark's parenthesis is for the readers in the future who are going to read his gospel, not for the people that Jesus preached this gospel to initially. Uh, so for these things and for the things that the Antichrist will do, we would have to study Revelation in great detail, 2 Thessalonians in great detail, and other passages. So since we don't have time for all that, uh, we're going to have to summarize. So here's what we know. Uh, there will be a new rebuilt temple in the tribulation period. Israel is going to be allowed to resume its sacrifices of grain and, and, and other offerings uh, in this, uh, in this re, uh, revamped temple. Second Thessalonians says the restrainer, the church, is taken out, uh, and then the apostasy comes. Then the lawless, the, the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed. And then he will stop sacrifices that have occurred in the temple. And he will make people take the mark of the beast or be slaughtered ruthlessly. And he will make war with the nations and he will set himself up as a god. And if you take time to read Daniel chapter 11, verse 35, to chapter 12, verse 3, uh, you will read a list of atrocities that this Antichrist will commit against uh, the Jews, the nations, the temple, and against God. All of these things the Antichrist will do. Remember, this is after the rapture, after Jesus comes for all believers. Now, while all this is going on with the Antichrist, God is not yet fighting against the Antichrist. He is, during the seven-year tribulation period, and the second half particularly, he's still pouring out his wrath. He's pouring out his judgment on people who refuse to believe. And so what we read about in Revelation are the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments that follow the seal judgments. The trumpet judgments are that the grass will be burned with blood and fire and hail. A great mountain will fall into the sea, killing a third of the creatures living in it. A star or a meteor called wormwood uh, is going to turn the waters of the earth bitter and cause the death of millions. The sun, the moon, and the stars are going to be struck so that they emit one-third less light. Locusts will emerge from this great hole and they will sting people uh, and, and cause such pain that these people will wish for death. 
200 million horsemen will come and kill a third of the remaining people. And then the seventh trumpet blows, which ushers in the seven bowl judgments. And the seven bowl judgments are excruciating sores on all who accept the mark of the beast. The sea will be turned to blood. The rivers turned to blood. The sun's heat will intensify so that the people of the earth will be scorched. Darkness will cover the throne of the Antichrist. God will send lying demon spirits uh, to uh, assemble the armies of the Antichrist for the battle of Armageddon, and the earth will be shaken with earthquakes. That's a lot of stuff, right? Aside from what the Antichrist is doing, this is what God is doing, and yet people will still curse God. Isn't that incredible that that's what they will do? And we're confident that all these things are yet future because none of this stuff has happened yet, right? We're still waiting for this to happen. And this is why Jesus gave the warnings that he did in our passage today. Now, some of these warnings could certainly apply to what happened at the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. Uh, but really, more accurately and more specifically, these warnings uh, describe what is going to happen in the end times to people who experience the tribulation. Uh, Jesus said in verse 19, uh, for those days will be a time of tribulation such as had not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now. So Jesus was obviously looking past the destruction of the temple uh, to something far worse in the distant future. And all this might lead us to ask, why does God allow the tribulation? Why is he going to put people through this most awful period of time? And the reason is that they have not believed up until this point. And sometimes it is suffering that God uses to get people's attention. And so he's giving people one more chance, one more opportunity to believe in him, especially Israel. He wants Israel to be saved. And he's serious about sin. God must judge sin. He must judge sin, but he's always ready to receive anyone who will repent. And so Jesus' warning uh, here in Mark 13 is for those who do repent during the tribulation period and telling them this is what's going to happen. It's going to get really bad. Revelation 7 and Revelation 14 talk about 144,000 Jews who are sealed uh, by God, who become evangelists and who make many converts during the tribulation period. And when these believers, these, these tribulation believers, see the abomination of desolation in the temple where it ought not be, they will know that it's about to go down. They have got really bad stuff uh, coming ahead of them. And they'll need to take cover because it's worse than anything the world has ever seen before. And that's really saying something considering all that the world has seen before. But in the midst of all this, I want us to see two eternal attributes about God that are on display even as he pours out his wrath on the unbelieving world. And the first thing is God's mercy. Verse 20, unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So God has ordained that the tribulation is going to last for seven years. The second half of the tribulation, where literally all hell breaks loose on earth uh, through the Antichrist under Satan's authority, will last only three and a half years. Now, it's by God's mercy that anyone is saved. Uh, and it's also by God's mercy that these tribulation saints will only have to endure three and a half years of this great tribulation. Or else, as verse 20 says, no life could be saved. No one could endure longer than that as how bad this is going to be. So God's mercy is on display here. And the second thing I want us to see is God's grace. You know, God is under no obligation 
at all to tell us his plans. He's under no obligation to tell us that, but God graciously, in his word, has revealed himself and his plans in the Bible uh, so that those who are alive at the time would be able to uh, interpret the signs of the times as they see them uh, and know how long they'll need to endure. Now, you know from your own experience that when you suffer, uh, when you don't know, when there's no end in sight, it's, it's truly awful. But we all know that if we, you know, if we could just make it till Tuesday or a month from now or a year from now, whatever it is, if we're giving an, given an end time, well, we can endure that amount of suffering because we know that it's only for a limited time. And so God is going to give these tribulation saints the encouragement they need by shortening the days uh, by his grace so that they will have the encouragement and the strength to endure the tribulation. So... We've seen who the Antichrist is, a later ruler of some future reconstituted Roman Empire, and we've seen some of the awful things uh, that he will do. Now, what should we do? What should we do? We're not going to see the tribulation, but that doesn't mean we're without obligation. The first thing we ought to do is to pray. Now, this probably seems obvious, right? Of course we ought to pray, but, but what do we pray for exactly? Now, we know that at the end of Revelation, John wrote Maranatha, which means come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. So, yes, we should pray for the Lord to come. But what would happen if the Lord came today? What if the church was raptured today? You all have friends and family who are not saved, and they are going to enter into the tribulation. And we just heard about what the tribulation is going to be. How awful is that going to be for them? So we should be praying for the souls of our unbelieving friends and family every day as though we actually believe the rapture could happen today because it could actually happen today. And so it's even more important to talk to God about our friends and family than it is to talk to our friends and family about God because God is sovereign. God chooses who is saved. So ask Jesus to pursue your friends and your family like he pursued Paul on the road to Damascus. That's what we need to be doing. And when we pray for the salvation of our friends and family, we should ask God to do whatever he has to do to bring them to saving faith. And when we pray a prayer like that, that's a scary prayer. Because we are saying, God, no matter what it takes, you know, do unto them as you did unto Job or anybody else, the worst suffering you can imagine. Uh, when we pray a prayer like that, we know it could get a whole lot worse for these folks before it gets better. But we also know that any suffering that we endure here is momentary compared to the glory that awaits in heaven. So yes, if they have to suffer now, they have to suffer now. If that's what it takes for God to do his work and bring them to saving faith, well, we should pray, God, have at it. Make it happen so that these people will be in heaven forever with us. So the first thing we do is pray. And the next thing we do is witness. We must witness. Yes, we talk to uh, to God about people, but we also talk to people about God. Uh, this wonderful little passage from Romans chapter 10. Uh, How w then will they call on him whom, in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So we need to preach this gospel. We need to tell people that we are all under judgment for God's sin, or for our sin, my apologies. We are all under God's judgment for our sin. And he has given us only one way out, faith in Jesus Christ. You have no other way out except for faith in Jesus Christ. This is how God has ordained it. 
Uh, and, and so this faith in Jesus Christ is that he died for our sins and that he rose from the dead. And we have this message of hope, but it's of no value to someone who hasn't heard it, right? It's of no value to them. So we don't need to be ordained pastors or Bible scholars or seminary students or whatever. You all know the gospel and you all have your own life experiences uh, that verify in your life uh, what God has done for you. And we all preach the gospel through the very simple message you all can say, Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And we can preach the gospel through the things we do. Now the world is bad enough now. The tribulation will be far, far worse and if we love people like Jesus loves people, we will pray for these people and we will witness to these people. So to recap what we've said about Mark chapter 13 so far, don't be deceived, be on guard, stand firm. That's last week. And from this week, pray and witness. Jesus has already won the battle. He defeated Satan when he rose from the dead. And because he wins, we win. And everybody who believes in Jesus Christ also wins. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what we need to share. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. It is so gracious of you to reveal all of these things that you have no obligation to reveal to us, yet because you love us and because you want us to understand what is going to happen and for the people who are living at the time to understand what is happening, you have revealed these things to us. Lord, uh, help us to know how to live, to interpret the signs of the times now. We live in a very difficult time now. And our, our purpose, the reason you have us here, Lord, is, is that we would witness, that we would bring as many people to heaven with us as you have ordained. And so uh, give us the courage, Lord. Uh, help us to uh, fulfill the Great Commission, to go and witness and make disciples. We ask these things in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.